Today's scripture is Psalm 10. Please stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's word. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In ignorance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you know mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, I am going to... uh, give a brief update on what's happening at New City Fellowship uh, because I feel like it would not be fair to not share a little bit about what's happening there before we get into the text today. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Chris Holdridge. Uh, I was on staff here at Grace Church for like 12 years or so and uh, Grace Church has sent me and a group of people out from this church to plant a church in the Beechwood neighborhood of Rochester and uh, we just celebrated our three-year anniversary last week three years it's been so pretty pretty awesome and uh, we have all all the problems you would imagine a three-year-old has if you don't have or have never had a three-year-old but um, it is uh, it's a beautiful um, experience we are all learning uh, slowly but surely Uh, there are lots of challenges Um, I think uh, you know if I could just share as as a pastor What's, what's become more difficult at New City is, you know, our intention uh, and, yeah, our, our goal in planting this work was to be, and forgive the lingo, like a missional community, right? So our, we go there with the, the sole intention of serving the Beechwood neighborhood, which means kind of adopting the concerns of the neighborhood, learning, you know, cross-culturally what matters to the neighborhood, and then 
uh, you know, addressing those concerns as many creative ways as we can. So, like, that's the goal. That's, that's what we send missionaries to do in other nations. Take the gospel to a different place, learn the place, learn how to apply the gospel to the problems of the place. That's what we do. Uh, and so, in, in, in this effort, we have been very successful, and it's been beautiful to see the fruit of the work we've been doing there. On the other hand, we're a church, right? So we're a group of people who need the gospel ourselves, who need discipleship, who need shepherding, who need assistance in all the different ways that people need assistance, who need love, who need to feel like they haven't been forgotten in the congregation, right? All these things. So the way I, that Alicia, my wife and I have been talking about it is when you are engaged in a mission work with a church that you're working alongside of or with, uh, it's like, it's like um, driving two boats. Uh, you, and, and, and there are waves, definitely, but you've, you've got a hand over here and a hand over here and you've got a foot in each boat. And one boat maybe is, is going really well and you're having, but one boat starts to drift off to the side. Now, you only got so much energy and strength and ability, so what happens when that boat starts to veer off, right? Uh, there's a question mark there right now for us. <laughs> You know, what happens? What happens to the pastor? What happens to the leaders? What happens to the, the work um, when you start to get torn like that? And we are growing. Uh, I would say, you know, probably every five weeks we run out of seats uh, in the gym at Community Place. So we're running about 60 to 80 people. Um, and uh, with that kind of pressure, like I said, there's just a question mark. What do we do? Uh, because the needs of the neighborhood uh, are the same and the more people in the neighborhood that become aware of us as a missional community make their needs, um, uh, they make their, their needs known to us and we assist them. So there's this interesting dynamic that's new now that we're trying to figure out. We, we need your prayers. Uh, some things that we have done um, to address some of this. Many of you know Drew McLean. He's a he's former deacon here from Grace that you sent with us. Uh, Drew serves in many ways like a deacon at New City. If you ever come to New City Cafe on Parcells Avenue, you'll often see Drew sitting there. I might be there, and there's kind of people that will just be like, you know, like the, the needs of the community oftentimes get met at New City Cafe. People call him Chris. They call me Drew. We don't care anymore. We've stopped correcting people. Just like, let's sit down and talk. Um, but Drew's got a life. Drew's got a full-time job. Drew's got things he likes to do. Drew's got friends. And uh, pray for Drew. He, does, he, he doesn't know that I would be saying this about him. He is an amazing guy. Uh, and he has sort of single-handedly the last three years been managing a deacon's mercy ministry without uh, being credentialed as a, as a deacon and without the, the, the support and the encouragement that most deacons are able to get in their congregations. Um, and so... God has brought to our congregation a woman who's a licensed uh, social worker, clinical social worker, who works part-time. Uh, and so I have hired her uh, to help Drew with the work of mercy ministry in the neighborhood. Uh, so that's a big move for us. It's sort of a risky move relative to our budget, uh, but it's the right, it's the right move because the needs aren't going away. I can tell you last year we gave 20% of our budget in direct support to members of our church and neighborhood. So that's a, that's a big number. 
And, and if you know what that number uh, represents, then you know that's a lot of conversations because we do financial counseling with everyone, right? That's a lot of conversations with landlords and rg and &E. It's a lot of time. So we felt like this hire was necessary to free up Drew and some others to really do some work um, that we feel called to do as a church body. Uh, so that's, that's kind of where we're at right now. Um, I, we're going to be in this holding pattern for a little bit of trying to get a feel for, for how to do this work as a growing church community uh, in a neighborhood. And uh, we really would love your prayers. Um, and, uh, you know, feel free, please drop into the cafe, uh, patronize the New City Cafe as much as you can. Um, everyone on staff at 441 Ministries in the cafe comes to our church. So um, you, you'll, you ought to feel right at home if you stop in there and say hi to someone. Tell them you're from Grace Church. You're, you're, uh, your mom and dad just say, hey, I'm your spiritual dad. Give me some coffee. Um, so thank you for, for listening. Please pray for us. Uh, I'm going to pray right now as we turn back to the passage, which is a heavy passage. You know, I'm sorry that we kind of drifted into that report, but uh, let's pray and ask God for help. Lord, as we uh, come to your word and as we uh, look at Psalm 10 together and are challenged by the words that are provided here by your servant David, we ask for your help. We ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, you would quicken our hearts and our minds to hear what you want to communicate to us. Lord, I pray if there are people here who do not consider themselves followers of Christ, uh, that you would help them to have open minds to hear the message that is in the word today. We pray for the power of your spirit to transform us all, to change us, renew us, refresh us, give us hope through the preaching of your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So you come to a, a psalm like this, which um, fits a few different kinds of uh, themes when you look at the Psalms. It's kind of a lament psalm. David is, is sad about the state of affairs in the world. Uh, it's, it's sort of also what you might call an imprecatory psalm, a psalm that prays for God's uh, judgment and uh, justice and punishment of people who oppose him and oppose his people. It's also a psalm of praise because in the end it breaks into this statement about the, the king who reigns forever. Uh, and so it's, it's hard to shoehorn this psalm into one thematic category and say this is, this is what it is. It's, it's a psalm that deals with a lot. But we're going to focus today on the idea of God's justice and God's judgment uh, and how in a psalm that mingles praise, obviously, with the, 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 the other themes, we have to view this psalm as a psalm that tells us that God is to be worshipped because of his judgment on the world. God is to be worshipped because of his execution of justice across the earth. And when you think about, you know, if you ask the average Christian, why do you believe? You know, why are you a Christian? You, you will get some typical answers. Maybe you'll get an answer like, you know, he saved me. <laughs> Just a simple testimony. He saved me. You might say, he healed me. Uh, he healed me of an addiction and I've never turned back. You might say, he loves me. I feel his love. You might say, I know he's the creator. He created all things. He deserves my worship. But hardly ever will you hear someone say, I worship him because he is a God of judgment. 
right? That's, that's not a testimony that will go into a, a frame with little flowers around it that you can put on your windowsill in front of your kitchen sink like we do. We, we have little inspirational scriptures, right? But guess what? It, it belongs there. It belongs there. Our God is a God of judgment and David directs us to worship him because he's a God of judgment. This is a psalm that would have been perhaps sung in front of the whole congregation of the people of Israel as a normative part of their worship. And they knew that God must be worshipped because of his power to judge. If we start looking at the psalm uh, around verse 15 to the end, listen to what David's prayer sounds like. He says, Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his hand. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. What a powerful statement. What a powerful testimony. Why wouldn't we want that to be writ large in our worship of God? That he punishes men that they may strike terror no more on the earth. Especially in this age. We live in the age of terror. Why not worship him for his justice? I think the church, I think I need my worship reoriented to understand that our hope, our hope in Christ is wrapped in God's justice as we see it displayed in Psalm 10. Modern secularism doesn't want to assent to this kind of ideal. Modern secularism doesn't want to believe that judgment is good, sort of at the 30,000-foot view, but if you get down to grass tacks, brass tacks, there's kind of a different uh, ideal. There's a sense in the world today, I think, that you can't judge anybody for anything. No one wants to be judged for anything. I, I think the, the, the ideologues in the culture will say, you can't judge me. Judging is wrong. We should not be judging each other. There should, there should be no judgment. That's kind of a, just a theme in our culture. However, if you look at the interactions of people, if you just look at social media, if you watch the news, you see that everyone is judging everyone nonstop. Right? So we live in this world where we're getting fed this idea that you can't judge, but in practice you see everyone judging everyone for everything. All right? So you've got the, the, the blogs and the social media posts, you know, helicopter parents are destroying the world with how conservative and controlling they are over their children. And the other side, you got free-range parents are destroying the world by the way they let their kids just roam freely and not have any control. So basically, today, all parents are destroying the world by the way they parent their children, right? It's a, it's a constant cycle of judgment and, and guilt. Everybody just feels bad all the time if they read uh, an article on a blog about their parenting and how bad it is. So there's this constant shaming and constant judgment. It's almost impossible to hold this ideal of no judgment in tension with the practice of constant judgment. The whole perspective collapses because you can't judge those who judge, right? 
So the question can't be whether or not we ought to judge. The question should be, by what standard do we make judgments? And the Christian claim is that the Bible actually has some standards by which we can make judgments. This is extreme language now, but judgments on who the wicked are and who the wicked are not. That's what we read in this text. The Bible provides us, and Psalm 10 specifically, provides us with a standard by which the church of Christ can discern wickedness in the world. It's just one psalm. I'm not talking about the whole Bible, okay? There's lots of standards in the Bible we can look at, but we're looking at Psalm 10 today. Let's look at verses 3 and 4 to discern the standard by which we can see wickedness in the world. Verse 3 says, For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. So we see this idea of boasting in the desires of our soul, a, a kind of greed and a pride at the heart of wickedness and a general belief and sense that there is no God. In other words, the priority of the wicked are the desires of their own souls, not God's just design. So that's sort of a baseline that we see in verses 3 and 4. But the psalmist then goes into detail. He gives us the baseline. Here's how the wicked thinks. Here's how the wicked one thinks. If you're not a Christian, don't take offense immediately to this idea, okay? <laughs> Just hang with us. The psalmist continues to show how this works itself out, how this basic understanding of wickedness, fulfilling the desires of your own heart, now takes shape in the world, right? So there's this idea, follow the desires of your own heart, but now the psalmist says, here's what it looks like in the world. Look at verse 7. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Things start to take shape. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. All right, now there's another character brought onto the scene. This isn't just about what's going on inside my heart and mind and what I'm thinking. Someone else comes into the picture. He watches for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. Now that character is fleshed out. The, the one who receives the brunt of wickedness is the poor when he draws him into his net. Verse 10, the helpless are crushed. This is the result of wickedness. They sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. So now the baseline of pursuing the desires of your heart gets fleshed out into actions, right? Cursing, deceit, oppression, mischief, iniquity, murder, skulking around. Now the character comes in, skulking around to get who? The poor and the oppressed and the helpless and they are crushed by the wicked one who says in his heart, God will never see it. All right. Now, take a step back because this is all 
you know, very um, intense language. So take a step back, take a deep breath and say, okay, can we use this language today? Ask yourself that question. All right. And then say to yourself, okay, if we do use this language today, if we can, are we making too big a deal out of this, right? Is this just poetry? Can we really apply these statements to life? I want to suggest that we have to. If you believe this is God's word, this has to be part of our Christian testimony. And here's why. When the one who says in his or her heart, either there is no God, or maybe there's a God but he doesn't see, wickedness begins to spread, according to this psalm. Wickedness begins to spread and catch and then have impacts on the world. And then the psalm very specifically tells us that the impacts of this wickedness or the, the impact of this wickedness falls first and foremost and primarily on the poor and the oppressed. Now the more power that the wicked have, the more organization that the wicked have, and the more institutionalized um, structure that the wicked have, guess what? The more the poor are going to suffer as outlined here in this passage. And so you might say, we're making too much of this language, right? Wickedness, we can take it or leave it. But David says, well, actually, this has an impact on the culture you live in. The, the most helpless people will be affected most deeply by the kind of wickedness that we're talking about here. How does this happen? <laughs> let's, let's, uh, let's paint a little picture. Tom Skinner um, was a civil rights activist in the 70s, uh, late 60s, 70s. He came to Christ and became uh, an evangelist as well. Uh, he's got a, an amazing sermon you can find online called uh, The U.S. Racial Crisis and World Evangelism. Uh, there's also a transcript out there you can get. He uh, gave that talk at an Urbana conference in the mid-70s, sort of the beginning of his preaching career. He's a young guy. He died early um, in the 80s. We, we lost an opportunity to hear from, more from him. But in this talk, he's trying to convince this audience at Urbana, which is a big Christian conference, um, that the, the sins uh, of our nation are sins that the church shares in, shared in and shares in. And he talks about this idea of institutional wickedness being present. And he gives three ways to think about this. He says, he says listen, if you want to detect or discern institutional wickedness, not just individual wickedness, but institutional wickedness, he says you've got to see three things at work. He says, first, you have to see the power of the economy at work, right? And think about things like market forces, uh, you know, inner, now it's global market forces, but just that's complicated stuff. I'm simple. Think simple with me. If I want something and I have money, I will get it. <laughs> okay? So that's the economic force he brings to bear here. And he says the second force is the political force. And think in terms of uh, law and enforcement of law. He says, if I have the money to get something and I want to get it, I'll go get it. Unless it's illegal, then I can't really get it. But if it's legal, 
I'll use my money to get the thing, and then the government will actually protect my right to get the thing. All right? Money, protection, boom. He says the third thing, according to scripture even, and culture in general in the Western world, that makes it institutional wickedness, if it's wicked, is that religion affirms it as well. That's where the church comes into play. So if I want something and I have the money to get it and the government protects my right to get it and my church leaders are saying, go get it. Guess what? I'm going to get it. If it's a slave, if it's an abortion, if it's a drug, okay, I just, I just hit some hot buttons. Sorry, right? But anything you want, okay? Those are the three things that institutionalize something. If it's wicked, that's institutional wickedness. That's what David is talking about in this psalm. But, you know, this stuff, it can be kind of obvious. David's saying there's good guys and there's bad guys, right? The, the good guys see God and they behave in a manner that is consistent with God's commands. The bad guys, they either believe God isn't there or they don't care if God's there and they don't care how they behave because they will follow the desires of their own hearts. So we've got the two teams, right? Creating this system, this institution. But there's a problem. Because there aren't really two teams, right? When we look around the world and even when we look at Scripture. What happens when the ones who say they believe God is there and sees... What happens when those people begin to take advantage of the helpless and the poor? Are you following me? What happens when the ones who say they see the Lord begin to take advantage of the helpless and the poor and devour them? Then what do we do? What happens when the church is working with the institutions of the culture to oppress. We don't have to ask that question. We can look at the Bible <laughs> because David's church was that church. Israel suffered under the mighty hand of God for their oppression of the poor and the helpless. The nation over which David presided. In Isaiah chapter 1, we see this testimony of the Lord against Israel. The Lord says, and, and perhaps even the people of Israel were singing this psalm, Psalm 10. <laughs> But the prophet comes with a word from the Lord and he says, Bring no more vain offerings. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Your hands are full of blood. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. There's nothing more wicked than wickedness hiding beneath a thin veneer of righteousness. That's what God is saying. There's nothing more wicked 
than that. And so eventually, as the Bible and history attest, the geographical nation of Israel was destroyed. The Bible tells us it was by God's hand. They were destroyed and they were dispersed as punishment for their wickedness, shrouded in righteousness. Now this is shockingly, you want to say ironically, but it's, it's too sad to be ironic. It's shockingly, tragically, the fulfillment of David's psalm. David says, break the heart of the wicked. And a couple hundred years later, God says, you guys are wicked. And he breaks their arm. I mean, that's a, that's a symbolic language for destroying the power of an entity. Now this has always been part of the biblical witness. We're Presbyterians. We think covenantally about our faith and about the scripture. And if you just do a cursory study of the scriptures, you will see this every time, right? Genesis 3, wickedness enters the scene, right? As Adam and Eve fall in their sin, God is right there on the scene. And what does he promise? There will be one who comes, right? Genesis 3.15, one will come, right? The seed of the woman. He is the offspring who will destroy wickedness. He will defeat the enemy, right? Just think in big ideas here. Wickedness, someone appointed to destroy and save. Genesis chapter 4, right? Right after, right after this scene, Cain and Abel, right? Cain kills his brother. Why does Cain kill his brother? Because God's not looking, right? He takes him out into the high grass. God can't see me, <laughs> right? God does not see. He skulks, right? Takes his brother's life. Wickedness, writ large, on display for the community. God comes and deals with it. Gives Eve another son. What's the son's name? Seth. Why does she name him Seth? Because he's been appointed to save, right? There's new hope in Seth. God has appointed for me another offspring, she says. Genesis 5, we see the same pattern. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through all of Genesis, okay? Genesis 5, we see the same pattern, right? Noah comes. And when Noah is named by his father, he says this, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed and his punishment of the wicked, this one shall bring us relief. Right? So, I'm, I'm telling you, read through the Bible and you will see this pattern over and over again. People are called to worship the Lord. They fail in their worship of the Lord. There's punishment for wickedness. There is one appointed who will make things right. And this pattern continues. It's the pattern of Scripture. Wickedness overflows. There is an appointment of someone to deal with the wickedness. Abraham, Moses, Isaac, Jacob, Saul, David, the prophets. But the stakes seem to get higher and higher every time. And in verse 15, David makes this request of the Lord for judgment in the midst of worship. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Now, if you just can push all the other stuff to the side for a second, look at this. You know, this is the stuff that people who don't believe in Jesus hate about the Bible. 
We can say that. This is the stuff people hate about the Bible. You might be a Christian. C.S. Lewis hated this stuff about the Bible, okay? C.S. Lewis didn't think Psalms like this belonged in the Bible. <laughs> I love C.S. Lewis, but come on, all right? So people hate this language. But if you have ever felt the weight of injustice as a person or as a class of people or a group of people, you don't hate this language. If you have ever seen the boot of oppression on the neck of a friend, you don't hate this language. You know that this language is required for things to be done right in the world. If you have felt the violence of oppression through boastful, deceptive, mischievous, iniquitous people, and I'm using David's language now, if you have felt that kind of violence and oppression, then you want to believe that those people will be defeated by the Lord. You want to believe that you will be freed from that oppression. The church needs to believe that God wants to and will free people from that kind of oppression. Our faith can't survive without that. We need to take note of this. Listen, God destroyed the geographic nation of Israel. Take note of that. God was more willing to have the Babylonians rule the culture than his hypocritical people. God was more willing to have pagans make music, make art, police the society, raise an army, have a legal system, and even have a system of worship. God was more content with that pagan idolatry than he was with the church sleeping on issues of justice and oppression. And he dispersed them. And that included the righteous remnant. The righteous remnant that was in Israel got dispersed just like everyone else and they suffered along with everyone else. So you might be thinking, how, how could this really lead me to worship? It's just kind of sad. <laughs> it's just kind of tragic. The idea that the power of the wicked is ultimately broken by God is a worthy worship ideal. It has to be part of what we love about God. What's unsettling about it, if we can be honest, what's unsettling about it is we identify with some wickedness. Individually, we can identify with the kind of wickedness we see outlined in this psalm. As a church, we can identify with some of this wickedness. As a universal church, as we look around the world and see the nefarious, creepy stuff the church is involved in, we can say, yeah, the church is involved in wickedness around the world. We are, I mean, think about yourself in the best light possible, right? If you are the righteous remnant, if you're the only one righteous remnant, <laughs> and God's judgment falls on the rest of the wicked, guess what? You're going to feel it. That's what's unsettling about it. We have all contributed in some way to the oppression of the poor and the helpless. That's what's unsettling. So what do we do? Well, David shows us two things. 
that we have to be prepared to do if we want to worship God in the context of this ideal. Two things we have to do. The first thing is you have to take sin seriously, which the church is less and less willing to do around the world. Take sin seriously. You have to be real about sin's uh, existence and sin's presence in your life. You have to have an individual conviction that there is such a thing as sin. But you also have to have a realistic view of the idea of corporate sin. You have to understand that we don't just float around as individuals in the world. We pool our resources, we vote, we pay taxes, we do all these things, and we contribute corporately to things that we don't want to see on the earth, things that are wicked. And so you have to take seriously the existence of corporate sin and how it affects others, and namely how it affects the poor and helpless. That's what David teaches. First of all, take sin seriously, individual and corporate. But secondly, you have to take salvation seriously, individual and corporate. David worships and praises God because God is going to save him from these wicked people. David says, I have the Lord who is not like me. He's not a king who will die. He is the king forever. I can put my faith in him in the midst of all this wickedness and I'm going to be okay. Praise Jesus. Amen? Come on now. Are you saved? Right? You have to take salvation seriously. This isn't just a game. It's what frees you to live your life the way God calls you to live it. You have to take your salvation seriously, but you also have to take corporate salvation seriously. You have to think about classes of people, groups of people who are oppressed and see your salvation spelled out in how they are freed from their oppression. People in the church get really scared about, are you talking about everybody being saved? No, I'm not talking about everybody being saved. I'm talking about David saying that the Lord frees and saves the oppressed. I don't know what else to tell you about that. Our personal salvation frees us to be part of what God is doing on earth to free those who are in bondage. Yes, we can say to save them. This is God's priority. You've got to take your individual and corporate sin seriously and you've got to take individual and corporate salvation seriously. You've got to study it. You've got to know what the boundaries are and you've got to be passionate about it. That's what David says if you want to worship God for his justice. If you want to worship God for, there's a bunch of other reasons to worship God, okay? <laughs> but David says if you want to understand God's justice, you have to understand these things. I feel like David gets to a point after he talks about the wicked in this psalm in verse 12 and he's just like, I don't know what to do. Everything's falling apart, right? And he says, he prays, verse 12, Arise, O Lord, arise, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. How does God answer David's prayer? On one hand, God straps on his battle armor and he destroys the nation. And he destroys other nations as well. Nations rise and fall as the Lord rises. He straps on his battle armor. But there's another way that God answers David's prayer to rise. And we see this truth echoed 
through Scripture, including all the Scriptures we've already talked about, about the appointed offspring coming to deal with wickedness on the earth. And Paul picks up the theme in the New Testament. And it's the similar theme. It's the same ideal we see all through Scripture. And I'm telling you, I don't really think I understood what it meant to be a Christian until I saw Romans 7 in this light. Verse 19, Paul says, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Brother Leon earlier noted in his prayer, you know, it's not just prayer. We're not just praying forgiveness from these little things we do accidentally. We're, we're recognizing that we sin wickedly, purposefully, intentionally. Paul says that, I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do. Paul, don't say you're evil. No, it's in the scriptures. I do not, I, the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. This is Davidic language. This is language of the Psalms. This is David saying, we're trapped. The wicked are all around us and I'm one of them. He's saying, David was right. Things haven't changed on the human end. We identify with Paul and David. I'm part of this system. But Paul continues David's lament and he goes on and he says in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this wickedness that just comes out of me? Forget everybody else. And you know the awesome testimony of Romans chapter 7. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God, the eternal King, through Jesus Christ our Lord, he, com he completes this lament with praise. Because where the wicked should be hanging for their sinfulness, Jesus hung and died. Where I should have been hanging for my personal wickedness and my participation in corporate wickedness, Jesus hung and died. But he rose. That's the difference. <laughs> he rose. He's the ultimate appointed one. Wickedness is ultimately defeated in Jesus. He's the ultimate Seth. He's the ultimate Noah. He's the ultimate Abraham. He's the ultimate Isaac, Moses, and David. He breaks the arm of the wicked for good. He breaks the power of sin and death for good. He was appointed. He suffered. And he rose. He answered David's prayer. He rose to defeat sin and suffering for all those who would place their faith in him and for the creation which he plans to renew and make whole and end the suffering of oppression. The only question is, will the church worship him for it? That's the question. Will you turn your worship to God for his justice poured out on Jesus on for your sin? That's the question you got to wrestle with in Psalm 10. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your justice. We thank you for your judgment. Lord, these are fearful, frightening concepts for us to reckon with. But Lord, we know that you exercise dominion over this entire creation and we trust you. We pray that you give us hope. We pray that you teach us how to be emissaries of light and good and your law and your kindness and your mercy and your truth in the midst of a truly wicked generation. God, we pray for your hope to break through, to give us hope as your people, that we may serve you and do the work that you've called each of us to do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Do we rise for the profession of faith? Is this what happens? Okay, please stand. If you're able. <laughs>